Hello, everybody. Welcome to another version of EdChoice Chats. This is Brian McGrath. I'm the Vice President of External Relations at EdChoice. I am joined today by two rock star researchers in the school choice movement and members of the EdChoice team. One, Marty Lucan, our Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. Hi. Hello, Marty. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And another one, phoning in from Missouri, James Scholes, Assistant Professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. James, how are you? I'm doing well. Phoning in, but not phoning it in. Well, right. we'll be the judge of that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> James is also an EdChoice fellow, so he does a lot of work with our team and has for years. So we're glad to have both you guys on the show today. We're going to talk about something a little bit different, and, uh, and I'll give a little background on this. So we recently hosted an event, we being EdChoice, called A New Era for K-12 Education Funding. And this is an event that came about with a, a partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. And it's a series of events we're doing that are exploring the basic question of if we're going to have a choice-rich environment in, say, 10 to 15 years, what are some of the problems in education structures like funding, for example, that we need to address now so that when we get our choice programs in the next 10 or so years, we're kind of ready to run and, and not doing a lot of backfilling on, on certain policy areas. So we hosted this event back in September. And the way we do these events, uh, this is our second one is we try to bring a variety of people in. They're small groups. We had 18 participants in this one. We try to get a variety of experiences, a variety of geography represented, of gender represented, all different sort of points of view on some of these topics. And then we break folks into small groups and we actually have them work. So this is not a conference where you get to go sit in the back of a big room and just listen to a panel of speakers. Now, those are great because I know Marty Lucan does a lot of those and he's a, he's a rock star, as I said. But this is a little different. So you actually get in a small group we kind of give you some problems to think through and you, you hash them out. And then we have a big simulation in the end of it. And we kind of see what people come up with. So that's what we did with this event. And uh, I'm going to do today is ask Marty to describe a little bit about, you know, what is this, the education funding problem that we're actually trying to solve? I mean, what's wrong with education funding right now as it is that we need to be doing something different. And then I'm going to ask James, who actually participated in one of the small groups to kind of talk about how that dynamic worked, what they talked about, what kind of solutions, either big or small, they might have come up with. So that's what we're going to do. So Marty, why don't you tell us a little bit about what are we trying to, to look at in the education funding system as it currently stands that might give some folks a little background as, as we continue this conversation? Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say that school funding is a very, very sexy topic. Uh, wouldn't <laughs> you both agree? Oh, absolutely. Uh so educational choice is simply a way to fund a K-12 education system. Basically, it's a choice is a funding mechanism. So I think it's first helpful to look at how we fund public K-12 education systems currently. So school districts receive revenue from three sources. Local revenue, which is usually through local property tax, state revenue, and federal revenue. And then districts subsequently will disperse these funds to their schools. Now, how the dollars flow not only varies greatly by state, so each state has its own funding formulas or funding systems, each of which is incredibly complex, as you probably know, but how dollars flow can vary greatly by district as well. So within states, you can have a lot of variation in terms of how districts are funded. Now, without getting into the weeds, we have funding systems where dollars are not allocated entirely based on students or student need. 
Now, it's the case that most states allocate some portion of school funds in a student-centric way, either student enrollment or based on student need. But to what extent they do that will vary by state. School funding may also be based on other factors that are independent of enrollment, like population demographics, which is how a lot of the federal dollars are allocated, perceived staffing needs, program costs, and so on. So in many cases, some portion of funds are allocated based on students, and while some other portion is based on factors other than students. Now, this arrangement is just one of the big school funding issues. There, I think there are a lot of issues. But this, in particular, has implications, I think, for how effective a school choice program will be for students participating in them. Now, with virtually every choice program, especially with private choice programs, the level of funding that students participating in these programs receive is significantly lower than the level of funding they would have generated had they enrolled in a district school. So in most cases, these gaps are significant. So for example, students participating in the voucher program here in Indiana receive on average about one-third of the per-pupil school funding. For many individuals, like education reformers, policymakers, parents, and others, one of the goals for having these educational choice programs in the first place is to promote educational opportunity and to incentivize the expansion of educational options for all students so that families have better chance of finding something that matches their needs, right? So if these are your goals, the success is going to be quite limited given how educational programs are incorporated in the K-12 funding systems and given how school funding is currently set up. And that's because you have choice programs which are inherently student-centric and family-centric operating in funding systems that are not completely student-centric or family-centric. So it seems that the two systems, if you will, are, are at odds. So that's, I think, why this is an important issue for choice. And you said education funding wasn't sexy. I mean, come on, Marty. Um, I know, right? Um, I make it sexy. That was that was good. So, James, let me turn to you now. So what I want to ask you about first is, you know, one of the parts about this style event that we've been doing here at EdChoice is that we try to bring together people who don't really spend a lot of time together in the same events, right? So it was a pretty diverse group from experiences and, and all that. So tell me a little bit about just the kind of general vibe of of the gathering itself and how people interacted, you know, because one of the things I noticed right off was that people just didn't know each other, so they had to spend a little time getting to know each other. But just tell me about your initial impressions of the event when you when you first showed up that first night. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There were lots of people that I didn't know or lots of people that I knew of. You know, I'd seen their names or, you know, I'd read some of their work or something along those lines, but I'd never interacted with them. And so it was really, it was just a, a great experience to get together with a diverse group of individuals who are all interested in the same sort of nerdy topic. <laughs> yeah. like, it's rare that I gather with people and get to talk about school finance. They're actually listening and they're engaged and they have ideas that they want to share. Like, oh, no, it was like I busted out a nerdy joke at one point. And then in almost every context would have been a flop. But in this <laughs> audience, it just killed. <laughs> and, and so it was really a lot of fun for me to get together with this group of individuals, you know, and you had people working in sort of right-leaning think tanks. Uh, you had people on, 
left of center who, who are interested in choice for social justice reasons. I mean, it was just a, an eclectic group of individuals, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Well, did you find that the um, – so sometimes you get groups like that together, and everybody comes in with their, their kind of staked-out ground, and they're just trying to convince each other that they're right. Did you find – was it collaborative? Was it contentious at all? What was the interaction amongst the people in the small groups that you were in? Yeah, well, you know, like you said, we, we did break up into three small groups, and I can't say what happened in all of the small groups. Mine was interesting because there were – everyone had ideas, but everyone listened. And we – you know, you gave us directions on what to do. And one of the things I found funny was how each of the three groups kind of took those directions a little bit differently. Yes, exactly. But in my, in my group, <laughs> we took it to say, what ideally – like, how would we structure school finance? in a system that really supported school choice. You know, those were sort of our directions. And, and then we had one individual in our group who I would describe as being sort of, you know, sort of old school conservative. And that mindset oftentimes really thinks about, and I, I kind of came, come from that background a little bit myself, where you think about local control of education. You're, you're wary of the federal government or state government coming in and taking over, telling the local community how to do things. But as we talked, and we talked about the importance of having more equalization of funding so you, you could move across district boundaries or you could have more free choice uh, through different parts of the state, you could see this individual who hadn't ever thought about the possibility of allowing greater centralization of school funding start coming around to this idea. You know, something he might have, if you would have said, hey, the state's going to come in and take over your funding, he would have absolutely been opposed. But then as we talked and we worked things out, you could see him coming around to different points of view. And it was really interesting. I think I saw that several times throughout the course of the couple of days we were there. Yeah, that's one of the fun things about this is that, one, it's kind of a closed door meeting in a way. And we, we kind of follow the Chatham House uh, approach where you can learn and share, but everybody's kind of anonymous at the same time. And it was fun to see people interact in that way and maybe maybe stretch their legs a little bit and, and think about an idea that would be, you know, not not appropriate in their normal day jobs, as it were. Of that, so you guys were, because the, the way we did it was you were tasked in the afternoon of the, of the second day to come up with some ideas, whether there be tactics or strategies about an education funding system. And then we had everybody report out and then we talked about it as a group. But were there any ideas either that came out in your group or that you heard amongst others that really stuck out to you as kind of novel or, or important or impactful in some way? Well, I, I think that, and I don't know if this is novel or important or impactful, but I find it interesting. Okay, that's <laughs> so, good enough. <laughs> you know, just the, the universal sort of agreement that people are coming to that in order to foster really robust school choice, we've got to have more equity in funding. And it's funny because oftentimes the opponents of school choice I think like to lump school choice opponents and say they're either attacking public education or they think that we want to defund public education or whatever. But what I found from most people, and maybe it wasn't universal agreement, but was widespread agreement for more equity in funding and a generally agreement, you know, that maybe more funding wouldn't be such a bad thing. Right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that just I thought was uh, interesting how that idea that we need equity. It's so hard to foster a school choice system when you have a district spending 18000 per pupil bordering a district spending 10000 per pupil. You know, students are they're not going to cross district lines if the dollars aren't following them, if there's this big inequity. And so there was really widespread agreement around that. And I, that I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. And 
James, did you also find that folks' definitions of equity were pretty much aligned up with each other? You know, in our group, we got into talking about what type of students should get additional funds. If students from disadvantaged backgrounds, who who are from low-income families or have special needs or limited English proficiency, we talked about those types of things. And again, I think there was pretty universal agreement that students with special needs or that are what you might call harder to educate should get extra funds. Like, we might have some disagreement on what those weights should be or how much they should get. But really, there was, you know, and I'm not going to say, you know, universal agreement on equity or anything like that. But again, generally, the idea was people agreed that students have varying needs. There should be some base amount of a dollar, you know, a dollar amount for every child. But then students who have these special needs or are harder to educate should have more funds. And there are two reasons for that. And you and I articulated this, and maybe maybe this is why they agreed with us. You and I articulated this, Marty, in the paper we wrote. You got to get the weights right. In in a school choice environment, if a student with special needs is coming in at the same dollar amount as a student with no special needs, the school has incentives, more incentives to take the student with no special needs. And we want to make sure the system, you know, that this, every student is served. And we want to make sure that you don't unduly burden schools so that if they have to meet a student's special needs, that they're not receiving the funds for it. And we oftentimes think in public education. I think I heard someone say this when we were at the meeting, it'll all come out in the wash, right? So we don't need to really put a large weight on that student with some sort of special need, you know, who has an IEP, because it'll all come out in the wash, right? They get a lot of funding. But if we're in a school choice environment and a school, a private school is taking some students and they have, you know, one or two students with special needs coming in, that may not come out in the wash, right? They need to have the dollars attached to that child to serve that child's needs. And so, again, there was a pretty widespread agreement that we should have some sort of weighting system. And we might have some disagreements about what the weights are, but I was pretty stinking optimistic at what I left the meeting that there was such agreement among so many different people. Yeah. Now, Marty, you've done a lot of work on ed funding in general. What states are kind of doing it right or moving in the right direction? And James, you can weigh on this too, because I know you've got expertise in this area, but I know at the meeting, there were several states that people kind of kept circling back to like, oh, they're doing an, an interesting thing in this place. And maybe that's, we ought to look at that as a model. But what did you guys, I'll let both of you take a stab at it, but what states currently are doing some things that you all think make sense? Well, I think California is kind of held up as a model, at least in terms of states that have enacted school funding reforms in recent years. I think in 2013, I believe they passed a school funding bill where essentially they moved more dollars to more of a student weight-based funding formula, but they also kind of lifted regulations and restrictions on how funds are used. So local school districts and public officials have more autonomy in how their resources are used. James, you got any thoughts on that? What state maybe is doing some things right? Well, I think that we saw some elements in lots of different places that people said this this is a good idea, right? Or so for instance, we know historically school districts have relied a lot on property taxes. And property taxes tend to be where we see the disparities come in among school districts. Property rich school districts have a lot more resources than property poor school districts. And so states that either have some sort of 
state collection of the property taxes or that do a good job of sort of rectifying the differences between the school districts. We saw that talked about several times as being a very good model. And again, as I mentioned, the weights, states that are weighting students appropriately are giving significant weights to students with varying categories of special needs, right? So an example of the way not to do it would be Missouri. Missouri gives one weight to all special needs. Well, of course, a student that has a mild reading disability versus a student with severe autism or some other forms of impairments, those are very different costs. And so getting a weight that is proportionate to the level of the disability is important. So I would say there are elements from lots of different states that stood out. One of the ideas that the groups reported out, you know, somebody kind of suggested that if you really want to have some good stuff in a dozen years, we better get involved now and do small things. Like there are some little things that could be done to funding formulas now that would lay the groundwork for broad school choice in the future. I don't know if you remember that part of the discussion or not, but do you guys have any suggestions on what you know, kind of small things advocates could try to push for now that might make broad-based school choice more likely in a state in the future? Well, I think one aspect is hold harmless. In some states, like Pennsylvania as an example, they have these rules where districts can receive some fixed level of funding regardless of their enrollment. So if a district has declined in enrollment, well, they can continue to receive the same level of funding from, say, like two, three years, four years, or even longer. Here in Indiana, we used to have perpetual hold harmless, so on, on and on. And that can get expensive. But more importantly, I think that also dampens the incentives for districts to be responsive to students and to families. It weakens the incentive to retain students and to serve them well. So I think that's one thing. You know, James, your former organization, the Show Me Institute, recently released a report on ways that the state of Missouri could reform its own school funding formula. And you've done a lot of work on that. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it, sort of in line with what you're saying on the hold harmless. I mean, part of the problem in a lot of formulas is they become much too static, right? They don't adjust when students leave or, or in, you know, especially when students leave. They oftentimes adjust upwards when students come in, but they don't adjust when students leave the school district. And so that hold harmless, Missouri has a hold harmless provision where no district can get less funding from the state than they were getting in 2005, no matter how few students they have. And I think it's almost 40% of our school districts are now on the hold harmless formula. What's the point of even having a new formula when you have so many on, on an old formula? So hold harmless is certainly, that's a certainly a good thing that every state should look at. How do we phase those provisions out? Some states, so Missouri being one, I don't know. I don't know if the others out there do, do something like this, but they fix property taxes at a specific year, so that you know, the way it works in a lot of places is they they'll calculate how much a school district should get, and they subtract out local effort. Local effort being what you raise on your local property taxes and some other funds as well. So then the state will pay the rest, right? They determine how much you should get, take out local effort, they pay the rest. Well, Missouri pegs property taxes at this 045 level, and they're fixed there. And so even though property tax assessments have changed a lot in that time, the past 15 years, we're still calculating local effort at that level. And what that does when you have something like that 
is it helps lead to greater inequities because the districts that have rapidly growing property tax bases are wealthier districts. They tend to be wealthier districts, and they're reaping this double benefit where they're getting increased local property revenue, but they're still getting the same amount of state revenue because it can't go down. And so that's the key piece we need to look at here in Missouri. And any state that does that, that fixes local effort or local taxes or property taxes, those things would be changed. And I think the whole, you could sort of sum up all these things, the fixing of the local property taxes, the hold harmless, even the districts that we talked about where they, or Marty kind of mentioned this, where they, they don't assign how much money a school district should get based on students, but it's based on some sort of static measure of needs. When these formulas are static, when they're fixed, and they don't allow for change over time, that's not a very good system for choice to happen because in choice, we expect students to be moving. If we have a static system and a student moves between three schools within three or four years, you might have three different schools all counting that student and we'd be paying triple for the one student, right? So you need a system that's much more dynamic, that adjusts and can allow the dollars to follow the student where they're going to school. Makes perfect sense to me. What would you say, James, and Marty, you can take a stab at this too, like what was your your kind of big takeaway from the event, whether it's a piece of information you learned or a relationship you made or just something, what would you say, you know, looking back, yeah, I'm glad I went because? Oh, well, I'd say a variety of reasons. One is I'm glad I went because I got to interact with a lot of people interested in the same topic who I don't normally interact with. And so that was just the connections and meeting new people. That was a ton of fun. Secondly, I would say that this work is really tough. I mean, and I knew that going in, but everyone acknowledges that changing school funding is incredibly difficult to do. And But that's why these types of things are important. This type of podcast is important is we got to keep the conversation going. We got to keep getting people educated and informed because to do this type of work, this is a comment you heard from everybody. There are only a handful of people in your state who know how, to fund, how the funding formula works. <laughs> and more you can detest, that's so true. Very few people have an idea of how these things work, and it's really tough to get anything changed. And the reason that we have all these negative things in the formulas that we've been talking about is because when they go through the negotiation process, everyone's trying to get a slice of the pie, right? So just educating people and having more people informed and aware and you know, getting at the table so they can make a difference and try to impact funding so that it can support more school choice, I think is really important. And build in what you just said, because funding formulas are very opaque, you have a lot of transparency issues, they're hard. But the conditions that are kind of necessary to be able to reform a school funding system happens rarely, maybe once every 15 or 20 years, what I often hear others say. So if you're a state where you have conditions in place that would enable you to pursue this type of reform, then I think my takeaway from talking to folks is that if the chance comes around, get it right, you know, go for a home run. So... But so I think that, yeah, you just got to get it right if if you're going to do it. Well, and I think we should say this, and maybe you said it earlier, and I just want to reiterate that we've been pushing for school choice for, for many years now, and choice is often a, an add-on. It's also often tacked on. You know, it's, it's 
an afterthought when it comes to funding. Right? We pay for it through tax credits or it's an outside line item or whatever it is. And, and really the reason we're focused on this is we, we want to create a system where choice isn't an afterthought, right? Where, where choice is a central component of it. And that's why we're saying get a seat at the table, be prepared when those opportunities come up, and be educated so that you know, if you have a chance to advocate or if you have a chance to be a policymaker and be at the table, that you could help to put in some things within the system that don't make choice an afterthought, but they really create a system that is designed to help facilitate school choice. Well said. Yeah, no, that's exactly, um, you kind of brought back full circle. That was the point of this gathering was to get people thinking about what to do now so that, like you said, it's not an afterthought. It's just built into the system, and, and that way we'll be in a better position as choice continues to evolve and spread across the country. So, well, Marty and James, thanks so much for being a part of this and for being a part of the meeting itself. Marty had a great big role in kind of putting that stuff together. And and James, you were actually a participant. So glad you guys could be a part of that. Hopefully this will spur some more conversation and maybe we'll do this again uh, next time to talk some more ed funding because uh, as Marty alluded to earlier, it's a hot topic on everybody's mind. So uh, anyway, guys, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today for another episode of EdChoice Chats. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and platforms such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe to our email at edchoice.org for all the latest and greatest news about school choice. (laughs) 